The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. It's a podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. Today we're speaking about demons and exorcism from Catholic tradition. A little bit of background, Joe studied under a priest in Mexico and in uh, Illinois, and he was considering becoming a priest for a while, so he has a, he's very devout and committed to the Catholic community. Yeah, start the conversation. What would you say when people think that it's all like fairy tales and things to scare little kids? What would be your stance regarding uh, this kind of binary worldview where there's a good and an evil going at it? Is that pretty much the Catholic view? No, I would say it's definitely not. Um, well, I mean, okay, so yeah, but it's not binary in the sense, I mean... Or a dualistic worldview? Right, so you have dualism, right? You have the theology of dualism in which good and evil exist as independent entities or spirits, right? And they battle it out, and it's always one way in between. But um, in the Catholic tradition and theology and spiritual practice, right, God is creator, and the this demon, the devil, is uh, a fallen angel, fallen spirit, and he, he fell by his choice, by his act of pride, an act of will, which put him into a state which was devoid of God in a, in a certain sense, where he, is, he wasn't allowed into the uh, beatific vision, right, into the essence of the Trinity with God. He was, God allowed him to leave, essentially. You know, if you don't want to live in the house and, and uh, enjoy my company and play by my rules, then you're free to leave. So he decided to leave, and then the whole legion went with him, right? And uh, so there, there's this conflict between good and evil in that sense where God being good and the source of good uh, is always actively working uh, against the devil. And the basic thing is the devil's not smarter than God, and he knows that. And so the devil's, the demon's only main activity is to thwart God's plan because they know in the end they won't win. But they don't have the knowledge of what's going to happen because they chose not to uh, make, an, make an act of obedience or an act of good faith with God, right? So they've been blocked from the knowledge of what's going on with God and his plan and uh, what's going to happen with humanity and all that. So his whole, he's just basically angry, upset, and hates himself and hates everybody else. And so just destroy. His main act is to destroy. Uh, break down into life. So, in that sense, it's not like two equally uh, uh, powerful beings that have the same amount of power or the same amount of, of ability to uh, work in reality, work in the world, and uh, influence us and influence the world. Right? So it's not it's not like that. It's uh, a little more complex. A little more, uh, a little more subjective, a little more human. I don't know than just like to like night and darkness. It's not just that. Okay, but, but to, at the same time, it's not like uh, to put it in context. Um, 
a lot of this um, information comes from the book of Enoch. It was very popular in the first century, and it influenced the New Testament and other uh, small groups that existed at that time is still considered canonical by the Ethiopian church. So uh, so that that's where a lot of the ideas of uh, the devil rebelling against God and the angels being thrown down in, onto earth and uh, the Nephilim and things like that all come from. But uh, in like our day-to-day -day, um, lives, uh, how is this stuff relevant? Because it seems to be this fear of, uh, you know, evil spirits being under every rock. So how do you uh, modernize it and apply it to, our, you know, our modern uh, perspectives? Right. I think this is a really interesting question, right? Because I'm not, I just, the thought came to me today. There, there's there are two points I'd like to make. The first point is, like, we have a modern perspective, right? And we we give it an adjective that our perspective is modern and therefore just sort of separate ourselves from the reality of let's say someone who lived in Greece, right? In the early in the two hundreds, the three hundreds. Someone who lived at the time of Christ or someone who lived in the seventeen hundreds, right? Or early man, right? So we have there's sort of a sense and my first point is that we feel like modern man is separate, right? That being Said, it, it's like uh, it's like we we think that certain things don't no longer apply to us because we're quote unquote modern man and not just man, you know. So we think by going through these technological phases that we we can sort of sort every possible question out. So to my second point, to give it a context, and I'll touch on the first one again, but that our daily life has things, all the things in which cannot be explained fully, right? Fully by modern science or another good field, right, is psychology. So there's a mysteriousness, and I would I'd bring up one in particular, right? So there's a big uh, push in modernity right now for sort of, quote-unquote, postmodern ways of, of doing health, right? So the science of health has changed dramatically. So starting with, you know, the discovery of the anatomy and then diseases and, uh, and biology, right? But through, oh, I don't know, let's say 300 years roughly of dealing with modern health, we have four issues. You know, we still have a lot of very serious issues. Some issues we don't have at all, right? We've gotten rid of a major plague, stuff like that. But my point is, there's constantly a push to be, uh, there's this sort of revelation I hear in the scientific health world that not every uh, illness is, can be treated by sort of the, the way we've been doing it for the last 50 years. So we're trying to come up with alternative medicines. Now my mom was in alternative medicine for her career, she still is. And so they do things like chelation and all kinds of stuff, right? So, but they only deal with the physical realm. So there's this question of journey to deal with health in the spiritual sense. And a lot of it's, I think it's very good, right? I, I think the church thinks it's really good. You know, a holistic vision of what health is. Healthy relationships, healthy diet, exercise. And then there's some things that are pernicious. There are things that, I'm not thinking of cancer, but um, things that keep coming back again and again um, and that can't be explained by certain certain ailments that can't be explained by the science, right? I have an ache in my back and I should go 
right? And, and everything's fine and you're healthy and stuff. Um, and all kinds of, there's all this, so there's all this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, evidence by people's story that there's still a lot of, uh, things that we can't deal with. We don't have a solution for. There's no biological And even if you take it to the next level, right, out of the physical realm, and yes, you have a holistic management system in place for your health, so you have good, healthy relationships, um, but there's still problems that are persisting, okay, especially psychological problems, especially issues of mental illness, which I'm sure you'd love to touch on, um, but in the mental illness realm, that things just can be explained by psychology and the chemicals, the medications aren't helping, right, so maybe there's something else going on. So in a modern sense, and having a very rational, analytical, deduction, reductionistic uh, viewpoint, after you, in, in some sense, the, where demonic influence, if we're going to talk about it that way, comes in, would sort of be at the end of this, in, to say, in a modern context, the Catholic Church has uh, very much so embraced modern psychology, modern psychiatry, counseling, therapy, to some degree, you know, within a certain realm. And they, whenever, you know, we want to talk about exorcism later, maybe, but the, and, and then exorcist, the church always tries to uh, support that someone who claims to be possessed, and there's a difference between possession and oppression, that they seek all uh, modern forms of, of mental health counseling first, and then we'll talk about exorcism after that, right? So if you don't have healthy relationships, if you have uh, memories that you're dealing with, if you have uh, wounds from your past, from your childhood that you're dealing with, right, that those things can be helped uh, through certain human means, right, human spiritual means. And then, of course, you can get into theology with help of grace even more as possible. So there's that as far as exorcism, but at the same time, the, the church claims that the demonic activity does come in at that level still, right? Um, it still comes at, in at a level of mental illness. It's not explainable for all of it, nor does it explain everything in full, but I guess the point in the jump into theology, it would be to say that demons use every entry point that they can, especially mental illness, especially wounds from the past, to be able to get into our lives and influence them negatively. But to give it a modern context, again, it's the church, rather than just sending in the priest right away, has embraced what modern science has taught us about our own psychology and our own spiritual condition through psychiatry and how it relates to the body um, and how we can deal with things on our own. And, and to put in, plug in another point, I think... Uh, God always, uh, from Catholic perspective, supports that as well. Sort of a, a healthy, whole human foundation um, that is holistic. Um, God, God knows us wholly as a whole person. Not just He doesn't just know us when we go to pray on Sunday. Joe, I'm going to bring in our guest co-host Steve Brady, and I want to see if he has any questions. Does he have any questions from your perspective on? Um, this subject, uh, Steve? So you, you talk about the church embracing science to a certain extent, at least therapy. At what point does that threshold, do you cross that threshold where 
okay, you've exhausted all of the therapy and all of the treatments, and now we've moved into a potentially an exorcism-type situation? First of all, I would say if that, if uh, demonic possession comes up as a possibility early on, then a priest, every, as far as I know, and I could be wrong on this, but as far as I know and have heard and read that in every diocese, at least in every archdiocese, so there'd be one there in, uh, probably in Nashville, and then there'd be one up here where I am, there's, there's an exorcist. So there's someone who's appointed, there's a priest appointed, that's his kind of main function, but his special role. So if the, if they hear about that soon, they would bring him on early and to get his opinion on it and they bring in another priest to get second opinion. I think the point at which it would be case by case, but at the point at which it would definitely be when supernatural things occur, especially these supernatural things go beyond what's physically possible. There's been instances of, and I don't want to sensationalize it, but it's, you know, people will be able to climb walls or they are lifted up into the air off a bed or thrown against the wall. A lot of times, demons, when they really want to, they kind of give themselves up. And, and, that, and that's, I think, part of the thing, answering where that point is, understanding you have to believe that they exist, right? And then understanding if you're going to be able to help the person, you have to understand how a demon would think, right? So they're trying to destroy the person and get everyone else basically to become an unbeliever. But sometimes they reveal themselves in dramatic ways, which gives them up. And then the exorcist would step in. So I basically answer your question would be supernatural things, uh, but they tend to be attacks on people or like inex- unexplicable activities in the house, like black doors, things that won't break that are possibly part of the reason why that person is possessed. So if that if there's been instances of black magic or, you know, you see the pentagram stuff, uh, and it and it might be on something and you try to destroy that in order to and why humans attach themselves in certain sense. Like, they have favorite items that they love, you know? Like, some people love teddy bears, and demons love pentagrams. They attach themselves to these symbols, and they'll be on something, and it won't break or won't burn. So things like that, or especially cases that I've heard of, of like, fear, mental illness. Like, people, when someone completely loses their personality, there's been stories of, you know, priests and exorcism, like, looking at somebody, and then there's totally a different person, or there's seven people which is schizophrenia or multiple personalities disorder. But it's not something that, when it's time to step in, I think would it be something that, un, would, it, would it be untreated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist? And then, especially when it comes up abruptly. You know, during the first Exorcist movie, they brought up the power of suggestion. So the doctors were saying that if you believe that you've been attacked by a demon or possessed, you bring a, a shaman or a religious figure that represents the power of goodness or of curing that spiritual disease, and then the person, by suggestion, stops acting up and stops believing they have something wrong with them. So they pretty much explain away this phenomenon. And then recently, there was a young lady who wrote a book called My Brain on Fire, and she discusses how she went through a period of uh, inflammation of her brain where she exhibited all the signs of demon possession from the New Testament, from Jewish sources, from medieval history, whereas getting super angry, throwing things, being paranoid, thinking everybody's trying to get you, having almost supernatural strength. 
So all the stuff, just like epilepsy, who used to be considered part of the possession, has been found a scientific and natural way of occurring. So how can um, they still make a case for for this if um, possibly it could be just a type of inflammation of the brain that hasn't been documented, and that's why people throughout the ages have been struggling with it? To that, I don't really know, to be honest. I mean, it could be reported that 100% of them are, but I don't, I don't really know. And then David's point, yeah, I guess, I mean, a lot of, a lot of mental illnesses have been treated and curable by lots of different things. And I, I think it's sort of a, it's sort of a pastoral thing. It's sort of, I feel like part of it is just a case by case basis, right? You're going to say, well, case by case basis. And if, if all these issues are really just inflammation of the brain or some other thing, then why is, why are demons even a part of theology or why are they even a part of the dogmatic belief of Catholic Church or uh, Christianity as whole to be explained away? I think to answer the question earlier, to back up from exorcism a degree down, you know, we're talking about demons and they want you to freak out and say, I hate you to your wife. They want you to, to get pissed off and to put off work and just say, screw it. They want you to, you know, not do a, a generous act. They want you to sit in your room and, you know, hate God, hate yourself, hate the world, and just do nothing. They want you out of the game. Another point that just came to mind is demons, they're awful and they're evil and then we celebrate them on Halloween. And at the same time, and to sort of answer how many exorcisms have been successful, I think it's important to bring up the, the fact, like I brought up in the beginning, that God is always, like, present and that demons are still creatures in the theological perspective, is that they're always creatures, and God can influence them. And that's what we see in the New Testament. It says in First John that Jesus came to cast out demons, set people free, as he says himself. So it was a big part of his ministry. Like a quarter of the New Testament, there's a lot of it, it has to do with releasing people from demons. At the same time, you have instances in which demonic possession or oppression has been answered by modern science, which is fantastic because then people get relief. You have, on the other hand, acts in which, and I know people personally, who pray vigilantly for people and they are relieved of hindrances to their spiritual life, to their psychology, to circumstances. And yeah, it can perhaps at times get too over the top about it, but at the same time, it's like, why not? And maybe that is a little bit of, uh, of the fundamentalist coming out at me, but is that God's grace is more active. God's grace is more powerful than demonic oppression. So there's instances in which people who have been prayed over have been released of, uh, from the benign headache all the way to an exorcism, you know, in which they're totally under control and their will has been co-opted by a demon who's basically trying to destroy them and drag them down to hell with them spiritually and by killing them, which is, if nexusism doesn't work, that person gets possessed, they get held captive for as long as he even wants to hold them, or until God uses them by grace, so that's with or without a priest. So there's probably millions of people who have been released of demonic possession, or freed from demonic possession, uh, or blocked from demonic possession because of God's grace. And then there's also practical things that just never were exposed. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, just like in the New Testament, there's multiple instances, there still are people today who use the power of prayer, asking God's grace over this person, and this person is freed from things which could be cured by science, but are cured by grace. It kind of works both ways. And to say that, at least from what I've seen and a bit of read, is take a person who, say they have constant migraine headaches, 
song prays over them and they're released. That person should probably still seek medical help. And that's what the Catholic Church would advise. However, praise God, that person is relieved by an act of grace. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to work every time. God decides, right? But at least that person was relieved, right? And that's worthy of thankfulness. So look at that case and then to be like, well, there was something else going on. Maybe when that person prayed over them that uh, some chemical flipped in their brain. Mm, I don't think so. Like, Or maybe, like you're saying, the power of suggestion was so much so that they believed it was, it was just a mental thing, right, which is a spiritual thing that that person, because they believed that they would be healed, were therefore healed. And that, that's what you were talking about earlier. Um, and sure, there's lots of cases of, probably tons of cases of that. Um, at the same time, there's some people who suffer, there's case, enough cases where people suffer from chronic illness that they're relieved of it. And it wasn't just by the power of suggestion that sort of put up a case, at least, you know, to counterbalance that there is spiritual act going on, that there is warfare going on. Let me throw a, a curveball at you. When I worked as a chaplain, I had two challenges. One was that if Christians and Jews want to be intellectually honest about their view of the Bible or their sources, they're going to have to bring their idea of demons causing illnesses because that was very prevalent in both the New Testament and Talmud. So any type of disease, uh, blindness, stomach ache, everything was related to a demon back then. Then the second challenge is when a patient comes from an evangelical, Pentecostal, or traditional Catholic background, and they think that God has brought about the illness to teach them a lesson, or that they can be delivered from the power of Satan by some religious practice, and you're dealing with like real illnesses like cancer or being run over by a car or something like that. And as much as religion can be of comfort, it can also send them on rabbit trails where people start getting worried about they didn't pray enough, they didn't have faith enough, they didn't bring the right priest to help them. We even had non-Catholics call for a priest because they thought they were demon-possessed. And it's just, um, to a point it becomes silly. Like, you know, you have a Christian hospital that never talks about uh, spiritual illnesses because they don't want to sound loony. And then you have patients... All they want to do is talk about the spiritual ramifications of their illness when they're at a hospital where physical and medical means cure them. Of course, chaplains can be of support. It, it seems like very convoluted and very difficult to navigate all that stuff. And you have to know the rules about it. And half of the stuff was people just being on meds and having hallucinations about dragons and monsters attacking them. So how seriously do you take people when they start saying that stuff? Sometimes you have to be a little more modern or, or rational to deal with that kind of stuff, in my opinion. You know, I don't think the view is modern. And I'm struggling for names. The church's perspective of today is similar. Like, it's, it's convoluted. It's complicated. Our lives are complicated. Reality that we live in is complicated. Psychology is complicated. So to have the most holistic approach possible. Now, in practice, there is priests of different stripes and different degrees of orthodoxy. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's complicated, and I agree with you that it is a danger. Um, my grandpa was someone who's a very faithful person, and I think sometimes a little bit over the top, and, and uh, Pope John Paul II wrote a great encyclical called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, in which he starts off beautifully saying, the church always flies with two wings of the dove, one being faith and one being reason. And if you cut either of them off, then the way the bird dies. It may not be, it may not seem fair from, from all their 
various experiences or from the press that the church is sort of fair balance, but at least in writing, it tries to be. And a priest that I was studying under in Mexico, there was a lady who lived at the end of our uh, colonia, at the end of the neighborhood, and in a small shanty, and she came to him one day and was like, "My, I'm possessed, my house is possessed, like, things are moving, my house is totally possessed. And he went down there, and he went, and he he checked it out, and uh, he sprinkled some holy water and prayed over the house, and he just kind of looked at her, and he just said, just, he said, just remember, the demons aren't interested in your house, they're interested in you. So, how are you doing? How are you? And uh, my sister's a nurse, and I'm sure she gets it all the time, and she's Catholic, too, of people telling stories and uh, going off about uh, demons and dragons and stuff. And I, um, to that point, um, that brings up the whole subject of what is the place of art in in faith we believe about spiritual realities. But, you know, going off on, you know, saying that dragons and are coming after me and stuff, like, well, you know, you probably should just take your meds and, and see how that is, and we can bring a priest in to talk to I think that's very interesting when you talk about the two ways of, you know, it's reason being the other side of the of the uh, coin. Um, I think a lot of people um, they tend to focus more on the faith. And I'll, I'll continue the point by saying one of the greatest theologians of the church, right, is Saint Thomas Aquinas. Saint Thomas Aquinas studied Aristotle. For the most part, he studied a lot of philosophers. But you say to Aristotle, Aristotle was a very spiritual person. Aristotle came before the time of Christ. And a lot of Aquinas, our best theologian theology, is based in his philosophy, which comes from Aristotle, right? Which is, and Aristotle's whole thing was, his whole thing was reality itself. He was trying to discover the essay. He was trying to discover what is being. He wasn't, and he was a biologist. He poked at things, he prodded at everything. And Aquinas had to feel a word from the community that I studied from, which I love, right? Perturpacity of intelligence, like the acuity of his intelligence to be able to recognize that Aristotle was really on to something. So he used it, used them in his, in his, uh, treatise in theology, right? The Summa Theologica. And so St. Thomas is still one of the greatest theologians. The other one is Augustine, and Augustine borrowed a lot from Plato. Plato had, was, you know, Aristotle's teacher, and Aristotle left because he didn't agree with a lot of things. Yeah, there's always, in the Catholic Church, the, the greatest theologians are usually the greatest philosophers. Try to be grounded in reality and in dialogue. Reality, I think for a Catholic, and, and maybe, it's just a, maybe it's just a thing of historicity, you know, I, went, I grew up in Catholic Church, you know, in the last 15 years or whatever, and, you know, post-Vatican II, I mean, religious education has changed so much in the last 50 years, and it might just be a product of that. You know, my parents grew up and they went to school with nuns, you know, so the the emphasis might be uh, different, but my religious formation was always coupled with reason, I guess you would say, and in, in, in the modern sense, and then my story being part of my story in the community that I was with have studied Aristotle heavily, but not in any not in any sense in a way that they study it in universities. Not in an academic sense, but in a re, in a I don't know a personal sense. So in Eastern European Jewish uh, mysticism, there's this idea of uh, a dibuk. A dibuk is um, is a lost soul of someone who passed away, and they come back and they take 
uh, human body. In the movie Stigmata, they, they show that and they claim that's a Catholic idea, but I, I don't remember seeing it in the sources. In Catholic theology, is there a thing about someone who died and then finished their job or something, come back and possess somebody like what psychics talk about? As far as I know, no. No. In my inclination, and now I'm not, I'm not fully, uh, I'm not fully knowledgeable on this, but my only inclination, especially when you're saying, this is my opinion, you're saying that a person died, right? And they're held in some kind of limbo, so they get sent back to Earth, and then they possess another person. I mean, that, um, I, it's certainly, I guess, in the realm of possibility. In the, but I don't, I, I, in theology, Catholic theology would address that, uh, as a reality, but it certainly doesn't sound to me like a good thing, you know. <laughs> doesn't sound like something, uh, it's, it's very, very different. Like in, in, to touch on that subject in general, the, and to give maybe a little shit a little bit more, like the church, um, doesn't advocate, and now this is somewhat of a personal thing, and it's, so it's touchy, but theologically speaking, does not advocate praying uh, with the dead or sort of praying to the dead, but to pray for the dead, right? So, I mean, praying with them, I guess, is a little different, but to be like, uh, to pray to them to do something for you, like on one level, <laughs> on one level from sort of a, and it's always a, a balancing act, right? But on one level, and sort of a heart level, on a on a personal level, and, and sort of a romantic level, I guess. And and, and then we have sort of a, a tradition of, you know, I don't know, family and friendliness. It's like you know, you want it, to. It's it's kosher in a sense, and I hate, I don't mean to use that word in in the in the wrong sense, but it's a, acceptable, I guess. To be like, you know, a grand, my grandfather who passed away, I'd be like, like, hey, grandpa, like, can you help me, you know, find this board that I lost today or something, you know, in jest. And be like, you know, I don't know what grandpa's experiencing right now or whether he can. And um, so it's sort of a romantic notion to be like, yes, they come back and, and help unless they are canonized saints or servants of God, and then you get intercessory prayer then comes in. So you pray to angels, you pray to St. Teresa, and you pray with them, you pray for them, you pray alongside them. But as far as the people coming back from the dead and possessing by a ghost, and that's, that's, um, that's Halloween. That's something that I honestly have not studied uh, enough. And, and the church does have a perspective on it, but I, I don't want to go into it without having more knowledge. A lot of times hearing this kind of stuff, it's easy to go into all kinds of rabbit trails regarding superstition, trying to ward off demons or uh, avoid spirits or this and that. I always go back to, like, what's the relevance? And I know we talked about the personal thing, like, someone is down and someone feels persecuted or feels spiritually not well, this can give them some hope that there's a way out or that there is a source for, for that affliction or something like that. But when it's all said and done, what are the helpful things that someone can learn from this? I remember an Episcopalian priest telling us chaplains that a demon is something that leads you to destruction or that it's your lesser self. Uh, would you agree with that idea? And then 
the passage of Jesus sending the the demons to the to the pigs, there's a correlation between that passage and a Sumerian tradition of when someone is possessed, you put them in a bed, then you cut a pig in half and you rub them with the. So um, it's just interesting that it might not be a complete parallel, but that there was in ancient religion this aspect of the animal serving as a vehicle or a way to get rid of the demon. So first, what's the the practical application? And then the other one is, what about the weird stuff that is documented regarding demons that is hard to explain? Practically, you want me to speak like practically as a as a person who like practically from what perspective? From a perspective of you're talking to a believer or someone who well, yeah, well, not a, really or as a Catholic, when like, you hear a story that whatever that someone was delivered from a demon or that. Whatever they did kept them pure yeah. and away from being attacked. Um, does that give you hope and reassurance of your faith, or does it just weird you out and uh, confuse you? Because that could that could be to a lot of people, like not knowing how to make heads or tails of all this strange stuff, and then yeah. the strange stuff in relation to yeah. that passage. Okay, so when I when I hear a story of someone being released from exorcism, I'm like, that's fantastic. I think that that's great because that's what you hope for. You don't want this person to be experiencing that, and it's uh, it's a victory, right? It's a, it's a victory over that person's life. It's a victory for grace. Yeah, and it, it isn't. It is an encouragement. I think what's uh, difficult, maybe just for me right now, my present circumstances or mindset, is um, that you don't hear about it very often. You know. Um, you don't hear about those victories very often. Um, you kind of tend to hear about more about the bad stuff, eh? Uh, so, there is a place in, uh, uh, in town here, and they had, and I, I went to a conference, and it was about, uh, spiritual healing and counseling with them. There was a particular ministry for counseling. And, uh, part of that ministry was, uh, deliverance. And they're not Catholic. Um, but the reason why I went to them is because I was interested in it in general. And, uh, they purported and shared stories and, and talked about their own experiences about being healed, um, and then also being, uh, delivered from demonic oppression. So a demonic oppression would be a spiritual uh, attack, usually in the form of, uh, an idea, right? And it's the devil can only speak in lies. He only knows how to lie, so it's a good way to pick him out. Like, um, uh, what well, you know, you're God loves you. He'd be like, God doesn't love you. You're bad. You know, think of all the crap you've done in your life. You're you're too evil. You're too bad. God doesn't love you. You're far. You are far from God. Because you're far from God, you need to do. So much stuff to work your way back to trying to be good with God that you just, we're going to start on step one and it's going to be amazing the stuff that you're going to have to do to uh, get God's love back because you lost it. Right? There's no saying in, in Catholic tradition, the devil always tempts you into sin saying that, oh, God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and do it. Uh, and, and that spiritual reality of the voices that, you know, you hear in your head. Uh, one's your conscience, one's yourself, one might be God. So, so practically, I think 
that that is part of it is is discerning these voices that people hear in their head, these suggestions, decisions that they're trying to make, um, and to get practical counseling from someone who can uh, walk them through that. So when I went to this conference thing, you know, picking up on uh, how the devil speaks to you and what God wants you to hear, and it's all in the realm of faith, obviously, uh, is, I think, very, for me, it was personally powerful. I walked out of that and dealing with some of my own things that I felt very much relieved from that. But then it took, you know, it takes some work because now you're in the game and the demon knows you're active. Pigs and the demons, so what's your thought on that weird passage? I've never heard of any other case in which demons were put in. And no, I take that back. Actually, I have heard of a time in which a person who was possessed asked that the demon asked the exorcist, if I'm to be released, at least put me in a pig or something like that. It was a sheep. At least put me in that sheep so I can go freely or something. Um, and so he did. He sent them away into the sheep. Thank you, Joe. Um, unless Steve has yeah. a, a final comment. Uh, the Mystic and the Skeptic, We our special uh, Halloween or Day of the Dead show, and we'll be back next week with another show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, David. Good night, Steve. Good night. Good night. The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person speaking. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of What's Radio or The Farm.